Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Welcome to this week's episode of The Flow Line. We're joined today by yet another special guest, someone within AES and someone that I'd like to refer to as the OG of the Permian Basin, Mr. Gary Langford, VP of Business Development for AES Catalyst JCAM. Welcome to the show, Gary. How are you doing this beautiful morning? Guys, thank you all so much for having me on the podcast. It's a wonderful thing that the two of you do, and I want to encourage you to to keep that work going. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. And where are you joining us from today, Gary? I am actually outside. I'm still in the Permian Basin, but about 150 miles southeast of Midland. Gotcha. Very nice. Well, hopefully it's as nice there as it is here in Houston this morning. It's a crisp about 70 or high 60 degrees and suns are shining. So I can't complain after the, about the last, you know, four to six months of blizzard or extreme heat. So this is a nice change. Matt, what about you? Are you still here in Houston with us? I am in Houston as usual, enjoying this lovely weather. I believe they call it chamber of commerce weather, where these are the days that you bring people over to make them think they want to, you know, live here. And then the rest of the year, they start to experience it and have doubts, but (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely enjoying the few days we get. Excellent. No, that's absolutely. Well, yeah, you know, Gary, I figured for us, it was important to have you on the show. You know, we've had a number of great guests and and it's important to have folks like yourself who've been around the industry for much longer than, you know, especially myself and a lot of the listeners that, you know, recently we've seen, you know, the ups and downs ever since 2014, 15. For some, that's was kind of when the you know, the cyclical nature of oil and gas was experienced, but you've seen a number of these. And while I want to touch on that, I think it's important to, you know, I think a lot of folks within AES have probably heard your name, but maybe really don't have an understanding of, you know, how you got into this crazy industry and maybe where you're from and, and sort of the journey that's led you to today. So I'd like to start off just by for you to tell tell the folks, you know, where are you from and, and where did you grow up? You know, Justin, you hit on the, the right word. You just mispronounced it, the cyclical business that we're in. Yeah. <laughs> There's an older gentleman, much older than I am. And by the way, I've been in this business for over 40 years now. Older gentleman named Jack Honeycutt. He nearly needs to wear striped shirts because you can't tell if he's walking or if he's rolling, but (laughs) you can find him at the petroleum club for coffee every morning. And Jack has a very booming voice and served many, many years ago. There was a young newspaper writer that came into the petroleum club one morning and was looking for people to interview. And of course, Jack just jumped all over that. At that time, I believe he worked for Weatherford. But he told that young lady that this was the oil field and we were a cyclical business, just like what you said. The next day in the newspaper, she, what she wrote was, quoted Jack saying that this was a sick little business. And there may be a little more truth to that, that this sometimes seems to be more like a sick little business than a cyclical business. But as far as my background, where I'm from, My family was cotton farmers east of Dallas. My parents, both of them, first generation off the farm. 
but still with the agricultural background with cows and farming. That's how I went through college, made my way through college by poking cows and driving tractors. And all I wanted to do was be a cowboy. And I kept, this was in Abilene, Texas, about halfway between Dallas and Midland. And oil field was there, but I kept fighting that off. In fact, I lived with a guy that was five years older than I was, had already graduated, and he worked for an oil company and kept trying to get me to come into the oil field. But no, I'm not going to do that. About the time I graduated and started, uh, you know, picked out the love of my life. And we've been married 42 years, by the way, as of last week or two weeks ago. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. She's absolutely a saint for putting up with me in this sick little business for this long. But it became apparent to me that I could not afford her the standard of living that she wished to be accustomed to if I was just a cowboy. So against all better judgment, I got in the oil field. (laughs) And I will say, and I hope I don't offend anyone, but there are two things that gets in a person's blood that you cannot get out. And that's cow shit and oil. And I'm glad that the oil stuck with me and that it seems to, you know, the only, what is it? There is not another industry out there that we can meet as many, as they say, colorful characters as we've been able to meet in, in this oil field. So, but I ended up starting to work with Dresser Industries as a field engineer in downhole tools, experimental downhole tools and drilling bits. And it's interesting to see the evolution of how the entire oil field, not just on that segment of it, but also on our side, how the technology advances. You know, we started out doing all of our design work in a bar on the back of a napkin. And then it kind of, you know, before I left that, we were using, had CAD stations sitting on my desk so I could do my own designs and send them straight into, into manufacturing. So that's just kind of the beginning and how we got started. And so that's pretty much how it ends up being. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously you've been in mud now for quite a while. So at what point did you make the transition onto the mud side? You know, mud is something that early on in my career, it looked like the mud people were really the king of the service companies. The mud people understood what was going on, mud touches and everything that we did down hole. And so it was kind of thought of the mud people was was the top of the food chain on the service industry side. I can still make that argument. I can also poke a few holes in it, but that's okay too. Mm -hmm. But the thing about the mud business that really interested me and drew me into it is mud is something that you can really differentiate yourself doing as opposed to lots of other things on the oil field services side. There's actually a service piece to that. It's not dumb iron, as they say. The metrics of it are different. And so it, it, again, is something that you can really differentiate yourself. You know, when it started out, it was pretty much all came from a hole in the ground, being gel and bayrite, and you put some water and some paper with it. And there was actually a billboard back in the 80s outside of Midland from a drilling contractor that his slogan was uh, button bits and clear water. And that's how you drill wells. My, <laughs> how times have changed. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Well, well, speaking of change, I mean, Gary, what year roughly did you step foot in the Permian? Do you recall? Yeah, I do. 
it was uh, March of 1983, was when I moved there permanently. The first time I had been to Permian and oil field related was 1980. But as far as moving there permanently was March of 1983. My trophy wife is from Big Spring, Texas, which is just about 40 miles east of Midland. And so that was kind of home for her. Abilene, you know, 144 miles down the road. So that was kind of, you know, familiar territory for myself. And so that's when I went there to seek my fame and fortune. No kidding. Maybe I should have gone someplace else for that, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're famous and I'm sure you've got a large sum of dolo in your pocket, but you never know. Maybe we could be wrong, especially after the last few years. But so back then, obviously the Permian, I would imagine at that point was still busy, but the majority of the wells back then, I would assume, were, were vertical wells, were they not? You go back to the greatest rig count that we have ever seen, and I think you can even fact check me on this, was Christmas of 1981. I think we had round numbers right at 4,500 drilling rigs in the United States. Now try that on. And yes, they were all verticals, is what it was, back to clear water and button bits. But when you go into as late as 2014, the Permian Basin rigs were still 75% vertical. So you're talking about the horizontal side of, of our business is really relatively new in the Permian. You know, we kind of, other parts of the country got a little head start on that. But the uh, Permian, as usual, back in those days was late to the party. You know, Ray Peterson, who's currently the vice president of drilling over at Concho, back, I guess it was in the 80s, maybe early 90s, he was president of the national side of the IEDC, the International Association of Drilling Contractors. And Ray was quoted in a magazine one time that said that the Permian Basin may not be high tech, but it is what we call right tech. So where else in the world can you afford to drill for, you know, 40 barrel a day wells at $30 or $20 oil? And so Ray might have had a, had a point back then. And, of course, we've seen those wells go from 40, 50, 60 barrel wells to, you know, IPs coming in at north of 3,000 barrels. And that's actually, actually just a phenomenal type of thing. You know, the wells that we're drilling now – until four, five, six, seven years ago, it was unheard of to find a well or hear of a well that would cum over 500,000 barrels of production over the last lifespan of the well. Now, if you're not cuming, if your EURs are not 700,000, the well's not economical. That's how the technology has changed in our business. You know, we get into this business on the on the service side because we like to help people. And, you know, through the years, there's been a few opportunities I've been able to look at on the operator side and just really fortunate that uh, a couple of things I got to look at. But what it really came down to is I like to help people and I feel like I could help more people on the service side of this business than we could on the operator side. From a service company side, we get a little greater visibility about what goes on within basins and even in multiple basins. But with that comes along the technology that drives that. And then we have a responsibility 
within our company and again to help our customers to share that technology as as it gets developed. Mm-hmm. So what's for you? I mean, arguably the shale revolution has helped make the Permian one of the most prolific plays in the world. And that probably started, you know, around 2010, 2011, maybe a little bit before that. But what's been the biggest observation for you seeing the Permian evolve like that? And, and I mean, granted, you know, you can take things like traffic, just the, the influx of people. But what's been the most significant observation that you've noticed, like positively changing and really putting Midland, Texas and Odessa, Texas, you know, on the map in the world. I mean, everyone probably within oil and gas knows the Permian Basin and those two those two, I guess, cities, towns, whatever you want to call them, they've welcomed people from all over the world, from investors to engineers to, I mean, heck, even the president of the United States came and joined us out there on one of the rigs we were on. And, and so what, you know, it, it's fascinating to see just in the middle of nowhere, Texas is you know, quite arguably the most popular place in energy in the world. You know, that's that's a very interesting observation, Justin, and, and you're exactly right. But let me try to put a little color around that and back up just a little bit. We really saw the horizontal industry in Texas was, I guess, kind of driven in the Austin chalk and then, then just a little bit later up in the Barnett Shale. And we were watching that from... I actually, you know, worked in that part of the world as those things were going on. But trying to bring that technology into West Texas, especially the shale from the Barnett Shale. And, but you look at the lithology of the Permian Basin. Okay, you want to talk about shale? We have it. You want to talk about natural gas? There were several years in the 90s that we never drilled an oil well. Everything in the Permian was all about natural gas. And it's just the number of producing formations. We can go anywhere from the Grayberg to the Ellenberger. Depending on where you are, that's uh, 3,000 feet to 23,000 feet. And we can produce multiple horizons within that. Sometimes other basins, not named the Permian, kind of got into what was known as a one-trick pony. And then when that play dried up, then that was pretty much it. I think what, even though the Permian was very late to the party, I mean, the, the mantra had always been of the oil field that you, you mined cash in the Permian and then you went and spent that cash on sexy projects in other parts of the country, other parts of the world. And we certainly saw companies do that, from, especially with the majors. And when they decided to exit back in the 80s and into the 90s and then the last few years coming back in. So it's, I think what really drives the Permian's difference is the number of producing formations. And I'm not even talking about splitting the wolf camp into an A, B, C and a D. Let's just call the wolf camp as, as one. But to directly answer your question, Justin, the changes And I think it goes back to the one that really jumps at me was in 2015. You know, we went from a drilling perspective, one of the biggest slides in drilling rig count in the history of the Permian Basin. Back in the 80s and in the 90s, when we would have a slowdown, again, we're in a cyclical or, according to Jack, a cyclical business. 
when things slowed down, it turned Midland, Odessa and surrounding areas turned into a ghost town. I mean, the biggest business out there was FDIC when they moved in to auction and foreclose on everyone. And that's literally truth. But in 2015 and 2016, after arguably the greatest downturn in drilling rigs, what we saw in the city of Midland, yeah, it's a big city because I did live in the country and we, quote, moved to town, which <laughs> is in Midland when we downsized. But in that great slowdown of 15 and 16, we actually saw the housing more houses came on the market, but the housing prices did not decrease. What we saw in education was the enrollment in Hector County Independent School District and the Midland Independent School District, the enrollment actually increased. And I think what really drove that, guys, was more of the production side, the midstream side. When you go from the number of barrels that we were doing, 500,000, and you jumped out to 3 million. It takes people to make the trains run on time to keep that production. So I think that's the, the biggest difference in the, you know, the highs and the lows and what we see actually in our communities now. Hmm. That's an interesting point. I mean, would you say now, you know, in 2020 is, because I remember shoot, this was maybe a few years ago when things were ramping up. I mean, you couldn't barely catch a flight. You could barely get a hotel room. There was things being built left, right, and center. People were investing in property and, and heck, even, you know, renting out parts of, you know, land for people to come bring trailers onto. Is it, do you still see that? Or is it, is it, I mean, obviously the rig count now is, I mean, around 300. So I would assume not, but I mean, is the demand slowly coming around and, and are things more open and available right now than they were, say, five, six years ago? They're more open today than they were really this time last year. But understand, we actually started a decline, I guess, last fall. And then with COVID, that really ramped that up. But we've had such a building explosion of houses, apartments, hotels, and you really saw it all the way, not only Midland and Odessa, but through Monaghan's Kermit, Pecos kind of ground zero for the Delaware Basin, if you will, all the way to Carlsbad, Artesia. As supply demand on places to live and hotels to stay, yes, it's a lot more available. And yes, we've seen some, especially the hotels, the rates have dropped, but you know, again, it's cyclical. I don't think anyone is really at the panic point. I'm not seeing the prices of houses start to retreat as yet. You know, the way out of this, this down cycle, just like it's been on all the rest of them, from our side of the fence, being on the oil field service side, or even the E&P or our customer side, it's going to be technology. And that's what we're going to find a way to make money at the current prices of oil and gas. And that's how that works. Right. Well, that kind of leads me into my next question. You know, we're obviously on the service side, like we've alluded to, and more specifically on the drilling fluid side. Now, granted, we have, a, you know, a few other divisions that focus on other upstream chemicals and downstream for that matter. But from your perspective, how is the mud business specifically changed over the last couple downturns. I mean, it, it, it seems like, you know, everyone's been pressured to, to do more with less. Operators are having to, you know, 
adjust, you know, the way they operate, you know, from assuming, you know, to try and generate some cash flow around $50 and then it's been 40. And then obviously it was in the negative. I mean, how has that affected the, you know, the mud business and, and the services side in general? It's, I mean, cause obviously it's been tough, but have you been here before? Is this just part of the, you know, part of the cycle, you know, as we call it, or, or are you starting to see fundamentally things start to change? We are a cyclical business. This <laughs> sure. is not something that we're do not anywhere in this read the death toll of the hydrocarbon industry. That's not happening. We're in a cycle. We're in a we're in a downward cycle. There was a time that all it took to be in the mud business, as they say, was a cell phone and a friend. And even back before cell phones, all it took was a friend and a, and a row of quarters to, that you could call in from the corner gas station. <laughs> what we find from as technology has increased, and we've, we've seen that from go back to fax machines, you know, then, then into emails and, and who holds that information. And that's, that's a whole lot of insight into where we are now. There was a time that the drilling superintendent was the top of the totem pole because the drilling superintendent had all of the information. Rigs, company men took the row of quarters. They went to the Circle K or the offsets. They called in every morning. This is my report. They called it into the superintendent. The superintendent then relayed that information up, up the chain of command all the way to the ivory tower, wherever the ivory tower was. And if you questioned the superintendent, he just told you how smart he was because he was out there looking at it and you were sitting in some office, whether it was in Midland or Crane or in Houston or, you know, some other seaport. So, but now that information goes all the way up to the engineers in the office, regardless of where that office is, and it's real-time information. It goes all the way to the VPs of operation and up the ladder. And again, it's real time. And what we have done, you know, mud went from something that you came out of a hole in the ground, put some paper and some water, and here we went. With the horizontal drilling side of it, and as the well expenses, the well cost went up, the need for information continued to go up. And when you look at specifically all of the oil field services, but specifically on the drilling fluid side, is the people that have the technology that can better relay that information up the chain of command so that better decisions can be made. They're the ones that's going to thrive and survive. And, you know, we are a, a information-driven, a technology-driven company is with, within AES, but also within our industry, that's who is going to not only survive, but those that can thrive. When you look at what our customers are, are wanting or asking of the service companies is we need to lower our cost. Too many service companies out there, the only thing they have to fight with is a price list. And the only, when they hear we need to lower our cost, the only thing they're looking at are lowering their prices. Some of the customers sometimes have that mentality for a while, but what we do is we separate price from cost and with the technology, with the information that we're able to deliver, we actually deliver a lower well cost regardless of the price list. 
And that's what we're about, is trying to lower the cost, the overall total cost of, of a well, from our part of it anyway, and so that therefore we can drill at $40 oil, our customers can drill at $40 oil, $30 oil, and make money doing that from the, you know, and they can return shareholder value to their shareholders. Right. So Gary, I wanted to, I don't know, shift gears for a minute because you inspired a question that I always, I think our listeners might want to hear more about. And, and one thing, you've been in the Permian Basin for a long time, which I think a lot of folks in the oil field, you know, tend to move around or they don't get used to, to one spot and get to see a lot of the, the arc of the history, if you will, and have the relationships that you do. And that's one thing kind of as an outside observer I see is that you have these incredible relationships with lots of different people, all the way up from senior executives that are running oil and gas companies. But I've walked into one of the, you know, Midland or Green Tree Country Club and you're shaking the hands pre-COVID, of course, with, you know, the bartender, the waiter, everybody knows who you are, the petroleum club. And it's amazing. I think part in sales, you need to know a lot of people, but I think it's even more amazing that sometimes I think it's easy to overlook people that are, or people in general, who you're like, what, well, I don't know what you can do for me, kind of selfishly thinking. And I don't see that in you. I see that you've told me about, you specifically build relationships with who you buy your truck from, even if it costs a little more because you seek to maintain that. And I know that's a long-winded way to ask you to comment on just maybe some, some general thoughts on how that's gotten you through so many different things in your long career. You know, like you said, in, in our business, it's a great thing to know a lot of people. It's even better for a lot of people to know who we are. Part of knowing a few people and a few people knowing who we are really is a testament to living long enough and staying in the industry. And both of those are sometimes pretty good chores to be able to accomplish. But the thing that we have to understand what we do is we're going to do what's right and we're going to do it every day. We're going to do the little things right. If we can do the little things right, obviously the big things will take care of themselves, as they say. And part of that is when we become more and more visible within our community or with, within our customers. You've got people looking at us a, a little differently. We may not see them, but they see us and they see how we act. They see how we interact with people. They see where we go. They see what kind of tips we leave. They see what the white staff, uh, your words, you know, what they think of us. And that, the responsibility that we have being visible within our communities, visible within our industries. Again, we have to do things right every day, even the little things, how we drive, how we drive down the road. We don't know who's watching us and we can't see the people, but they know who we are. And we start driving like we stole it. We start cutting people off. We start talking on the phone and driving too slow, people notice that. That will affect what people think of us that affects because we represent our company, what they think of our company. We represent the industry, what they think of our industry. So again, it goes back to do it right, all the little things every day. And that's why we have a, the successful company that we have we have, uh, you know, people that are that same mind. 
I think that's a, a really good point. Yeah, exactly. And, and appreciate you sharing that, Gary. And how would you say you being in sales for as long as you have, how has the actual sales methodology changed over the years, especially with regards to, you know, like information technology, everyone being on their phone? I mean, I would imagine back in the day, you could probably pull up to a rig, sweet talk, the company representative and maybe get a shot at a, at a job. It seems like things now are quite a bit different, maybe more challenging, but how have you adapted to that? And, and what kind of, you know, recommendations could you provide for a lot of the salesmen that are out there that are scratching their heads, figuring out, you know, you know, a, it's hard to get in the doors nowadays due to, to COVID and B it's so competitive. And I mean, it's always been competitive, but the way people are interacting the way people maybe buy nowadays is a little different. Can you kind of touch on those elements? First of all, Justin, it is absolutely more competitive today than it has ever been. And that's a pretty easy explanation because we've got fewer rigs running now than we've ever had. And we still have essentially the same number of service companies out there. So, and in our instance, the same more or less the, you know, we're nearly whack-a-mole when it comes to other drilling fluid companies. They'll go away and other ones come back. So it's absolutely more competitive today than, than it has ever been. The only advice I can say is be you. Be yourself. Our jobs are so large that nobody can do it all. Pick out what you're good at and focus on that but be true to who you are and how you do things. Can we get better? Absolutely. Do we need to read more, research more, attend more school seminars? Absolutely. Positively, that helps all of us because, you know, if if you're not seeing something new for the first time, maybe it's reminding you something that, that you have forgotten. As far as the how we communicate, man, you just look in my case, you know, cell phones are brand new. I had a bag phone. Yeah, that was pretty cool. I had pagers before that. And, you know, uh, but then, like I said, fax machines and emails. But the way that we're going to communicate now is different. We're going to communicate through all the social media platforms. We're going to communicate, obviously, through text. With offices shut down, it is extremely problematic on how you're going to, you know, what can you do? How can you bring new leads to fruition? And that kind of goes back to you need to have a circle of your a network of people. And then you work within that network to meet and visit, you know, the best salesman out there is a satisfied customer and they've got a friend over at another company. And so they get together, then maybe you get a phone call, then maybe they'll get together, and invite you. And, you know, then we show up and, and whether it's at somebody's house, a volleyball game, a little league game, a, a five-year-old soccer game, whether it's out in the boat fishing, you run across these people. And, and again, that goes back to do it right and be nice. And then these opportunities start coming our way. Since absence of being able cold calls are, are very difficult right now, best we can do is email back and forth and and yeah, well, that's something we need to do, but the social media platforms and such as Justin, you and Matt are doing now, that is invaluable to our company. And I think we can point to this 
we've had a lot of success in the last three or four years within our company. And, and I think our social media outreach uh, plays a very large role in that. But it's use your contacts, use your networks, talk business when it's appropriate to talk business, but understand that we're there to build relationships. You know, what is it? We're going to make a million dollars off that person, but we're not going to do it every time we see them. So it's important to develop those relationships. And then if you live long enough, then those people that you started building relationships in the last few years, maybe they were on a rig, maybe they were in an office, but in a few years, then all of a sudden they're in the, as I say, the C-suites in the companies. They're the CEO, the COO, the VPs, and we just grow up together. And that's what I want to encourage everyone to do is to establish those relationships and keep those relationships because that's what's going to carry you for your entire career. And it has to be based on trust. It has to be based on what we can do for them, what they can do for us. But it's all about trying to help each other. And that's how you get through the down cycles in this sick little business. <laughs> that's true. Well, speaking of down cycle, hopefully we're on our way up and, and hopefully we you know, especially after this cold flu and coronavirus season here that we're faced with, oil demand will come back. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, this is something that's come up a number of times in history is, is peak oil. But I'm curious about your thoughts on peak oil supply with respect to the U.S. Do you, do you think we'll ever reach around? I think we got a little above 13 million a day just before this all, you know, took place. But where do you see U.S. oil and gas moving forward? And can we expect that again? I mean, it, it seems like I think right now we're sitting, you know, we're under 10 for sure. But you think we'll get back to 13 million a day? You know, when we talk about peak oil, the conversation at one time was about peak supply. And I think we're well past that. Now, when we speak of peak oil, we talk about peak demand. Mm-hmm. When you look at this on an absolute macro level, pre-COVID, we were had demand of about 100 million barrels a day. And obviously, during COVID and now, that that has really dropped. What we saw early on was, and we saw as it's referred to as the shale revolution in the U.S., it's no longer a matter of do we have the oil, can we find the oil, and absolutely positively we can do that. It's a matter of a price point to make it economic now. Mm-hmm. And when we saw OPEC, even pre-COVID a year ago, two years ago, when our demand was still running at that 100 million a day, OPEC was artificially inflating, OPEC plus artificially inflating those pricing prices because they were holding back on their production. The U.S. shale industry, shale industry, we were continuing to drill and produce more and more oil. And that was eating into the OPEC plus. Okay, right in the middle of COVID, that's when we saw Saudi say, we need to cut again. And we saw Russia say, I don't think so this time. And then we said, you don't, Saudi said, you don't want to cut. Let me show you this and really cranked up the production. And thus we had a negative full price. So if we all go back to the, the supply demand, the from our 13 million peak that we did in the U.S., yes, it has dropped. We saw our customers, our EMP companies, they were on a growth 
pattern of 20 to 40% a year increase in production. Well, right now there's not an appetite on the market for that kind of production. We don't even have an appetite for on, in, on the market for 13 million barrels that we were producing. That's why it's going down. You know, now when we're looking at what our EMP companies are doing, their words are flat to 5% growth max. So on top of that, then you put in the side of the capital constraints that our customers are under. There was a time they could go borrow money, print more stock, and finance all the CapEx they wanted to find more oil. Well, first and foremost, there's not an appetite for that oil on the market, but then the shareholder returns have not have been disappointing according to Wall Street. So you have two factors in there. You have the supply demand, and then also you have the capital constraints. Let me just take a minute to try to put that capital constraints and shareholder value in terms that perhaps we can understand. Okay, it, let's say it takes $8 million to drill, complete, and equip a horizontal well in the Permian Basin because that's kind of where my background is. And the three of us each have a 1% share of that, a working interest in that. So XYZ company calls us as we're going to go drill a well and you're 1%, we need 80,000 apiece from each of you. We think we have a good prospect. All right, we're in. So we take our 80,000 and we give it to them. They go drill a well and guess what? It's a great well. It came in at 1,800 barrels a day. Man, that's so great. Let's drill another one. We need another 80,000 from you. Okay, here's another 80,000, and here we go. Guess what? That well came in at, at 1,700 barrels a day. Another great well. It's going to pay off, and, and this is a great deal. Let's go drill another one. I need another 80,000. Well, wait a minute. I haven't gotten my production checks yet from the first well, and now – I had to, here was my investment money with the first well. And the second one, I had to go to the bank and borrow that 80000 Now they're asking for another one. And okay, now we're going to do a seven well pad. So I need seven times 800000 from you. You need to go drill this well. Throw the 80000 I'm sorry. And so all of a sudden what's happening is the expenses to continue to drill are happening before our production checks are coming in to cover those expenses. And so that's how the, the operators in, in very elementary terms kind of, let's say, outdrilled their cash. Although what they were doing was economic, it just didn't have time to cash flow from production checks back into more drilling. So the shareholders, the Wall Street, the money people have kind of really backed off of that. And we've seen that in stocks and oil stocks across the board for the last two, three years. And so we're capital constrained. The money people have said, you will live within cash flow. If you don't have enough cash through your production and sale of production to drill more, then thou shalt not drill more. So that's where we are now. We have a supply demand that is driven by OPEC plus. We have a capital constraint that we were outrunning our cash flow on the financial side of our business. So will we see 13 million again? Absolutely positively we will. It's just gonna take years. It's not today or it's not tomorrow. If it's the next uptick, when we see post-COVID demand, go back to pre-COVID demand. And then historically we've grown 
demand about 2 million barrels a year. Okay, it may take a little bit to come into that, but that's before what's going to have to happen before we see 13 million barrels again. Mm. Well, I sure hope we do at some point, but like I said, it all comes back to supply and demand. And if the demand's not there, then, you know, everyone's hooped. But I'm pretty optimistic on the demand side of things. It's just, like I said, it's just going to take time. So I guess another question I did have for you, you know, is there's a lot of doom and gloom right now, which naturally, you know, it's just people are maybe a little bit scared. Obviously, we've got an election and, you know, it could be a pivotal point for us here in oil and gas. But I mean, what is your sort of crystal ball look like and sort of in the long run? I mean, is there is there optimism around the corner or or do you think that I mean, or what kind of optimism can, can you have or can you provide for, for the folks out there? Because ultimately, you like you said, I, I think regardless of what happens over the next four years, it's, they can't just wipe fossil fuels away, you know, from the earth and never have to use them again. So what can you leave the audience with, you know, anyway, a positive message for all the listeners out there that, you know, rely on putting food on the table from oil and gas and, and really have, you know, done well through the years. And there's some people that are scared, you know, and, and, and fearful for what might happen, you know, today's November 2nd. And obviously we've got a big election coming up. What can you leave us with to walk home and you know, give our families some, some positivity? First of all, be very, very proud of what we as an industry have accomplished. When you look at the wars that we have been through, a lot of that's been fought over oil. When we are production increased so that we could become, the United States could become more or less energy independent as is what was being touted, that actually drives our international policy. So be extremely proud of the business that we are in because we have taken our country to where we can be energy independent just at a price point. The couple of things looking at us and we keep hearing about the renewables, the green energy, and that is certainly going to become part of our the energy landscape. But again, that's going to play a very small piece of that. This is a cyclical business. We are in a down cycle. The rush to the renewables, that is something that is going to play a, a larger role, like we were talking about, but it's still going to be fairly minor. And the words I would have to anyone when we speak publicly, again, our, our image that we're always looking at is let's have a message that we're going to embrace the renewables. We're not going to fight it. And as, as long as we embrace that, we can find ways that perhaps we can be a part of that. But again, we have ups and downs, and that's just what's going to be in this industry. Yeah, it's low right now. Yeah, it's, it's scary times. It really is. When you've got a family, you've got a wife, and you've got two or three kids, and, and this is not looking good. But again, this is a downside. We we have hit our low. We are starting back on an uptick. What is the rig count going to look like in two years, three years? I wouldn't kind of guess on that, but it's going to be a lot higher than what it is today. Is it going to go back to 800, 900 rigs to what we were a year or two years ago? Maybe, maybe not. But I do know that technology is what's going to drive us out of this. We're already seeing the rig starting to kick up right now. And what I will say to the people that are part of our team and on with AES Drilling Fluids 
is there's not a better place to be. We've got the technology, we've got the people, we have the passion, we want to serve our customers, we have gained market share in this downturn. We will continue to gain market share because we take care of the little things, we do it right, we do it every day, we have the leadership level, both in Houston with Mr. Baxter, but even as importantly in Calgary with Mr. Simons, we have leadership that is fearless in this. They're not afraid to invest in the type of technology that it's going to take to weather this storm and continue to grow as we have in this downturn. We're actually trying to position ourselves to better help our customers, to help more customers on the other side of this. And I think that has Looking back, it's been very successful with what we've seen our market share growth in, in this downturn. Excellent. Well, I think that's definitely something to walk away with. And it's always a pleasure hearing you speak and all the wisdom that you're able to pour onto us. And so, yeah, Gary, I don't have any questions. Matt, do you have any questions for Gary before we close out? No closing questions. I was just going to, you know, share a thought of, you know, Gary, I, I just, I think you're such a valuable resource for our company to listen to and you provide wisdom in, in so many different directions. And it's just kind of, it's fascinating that you can help us understand the market conditions. You can help us sell better. You can help help us stay focused. And you know we're we're very fortunate to have your voice. And it's it's I know not everybody gets to know you because we have field people who you know don't come into the office and and that kind of thing. But I think all of us throughout AES just get a lot as far as as far as what way to go just through the experience. And and we're a relatively young crew. You you remind us of that quite a lot. And the history, all the things that you share really help. So one, I just want to say thanks. The other thing is if you ever do swing by the Midland office and it's open, you certainly need to check in with Gary and maybe hopefully you'll pick up one of his Gary-isms. I can't remember any off the top of my head, but I usually laugh quite a bit hearing his different expressions. And I don't know how it takes a lifetime to pick up as many as he has, but if you just listen for a little bit, you might get one. So that's all I have in parting. <laughs> that's great. Well, again, Gary, it's been a pleasure. And thank you so much for everything you've done and that you continue to do for us here at AES and, you know, and for the rest of the industry. It's, you know, again, like Matt said, we're very fortunate to have you as part of our family and we wish you and everyone else out there nothing but the best. And for everyone out there listening, if you could, please support the show by leaving a quick review. Also, if you have a great story or any comments, please hop on LinkedIn and reach out to either Matt and I, and we'd be happy to engage with you. Also, if you have a question that you'd like to relay to our email, but we have an email at the Flowline Podcast at aesfluids.com. Either way, please reach out and you know continue to engage with us. And for everyone out there, be safe, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.